welcome to the very first episode of A Different Page. My name is Josie Layton and as you know, this is a spin-off of the Words and Nurse series. So this is going to be coming up um, once a month and basically A Different Page is about connecting with authors who are rewriting the narrative about us and writing our largest story on a different page. Um, our very first guest today is the wonderful C.S. Picat. Kat, I am so excited to have you here. How are you going? I'm good, thanks, and thank you so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Um, Kat is the internationally acclaimed author of the young adult comic book series, Fence, and, of course, the best-selling adult trilogy author of Captive Prince series, um, which is incredible. And today is releasing her brand new book, Dark Rise, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, so I thought I, I was going to say give us an elevator pitch of Dark Rise, but I actually have heard that you don't love giving elevator pitches. I heard you <laughs> say that in another podcast. So perhaps a small synopsis of Dark Rise, um, if you would like. Yeah, Dark Rise is like my agonised love letter to the the English pastoral fantasies that I grew up reading when I was a kid, like The Lord of the Rings, The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper, uh, the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, um, yes. with whom I share a C.S. Um, yes. And, um, and, you know, I loved those books. Um, and yet there is so much about them that's so wonderful and so much about them that's kind of old-fashioned and, you know, I wanted to take one of those epic battles between good and evil and light and dark and then drastically destabilize it. Um, yes. So that the reader is kind of white knuckling it like, oh my God, what is going to happen? <laughs> yes, white knuckling indeed. That is definitely the feeling reading and it's in such an exciting way. Um, and I, I really loved that there was a real embracing of, you know, that concept of, that I kept thinking of was everybody has light and shade and there was a really normalising of darkness and I thought that was fantastic. So did you want to tell us a little bit about that and your thoughts behind dark and light? So I, I, grew, up reading, I grew up reading Tolkien and, um, and I think, um, well, first of all, like, all through my childhood decades, like the 80s and 90s, he was such the dominant um, force, such the dominant mm. influence across all of fantasy. Um, and, um, and I think he kind of defined what fantasy meant to so many of us. Um, so first of all, I think um, as Australians, um, even though we read and love those books, there's some part of us that is a little bit suspicious of all of the tropes that he set up that mm. seem to be universal. But of course, as Australians, we know they're not. They're just mm. the deep thoughts of the European id. So, for example, the thick, dark forests with the huge beasts in them. You know, we don't have that here. We've got wide open spaces and our, mm. all our deadliest animals are very small. You know, castles yes. and sieging castles and walls it's like that european hadrian's wall idea we don't have land borders here we're an island nation um mm. even the cold frozen north that we see in like game of thrones and pretty much every fantasy but here you know our north is very hot so yes. and, and um we we encounter fantasy full of sword fighting and you know big land battles and it's so assumed as universal that we can forget that Australia did not even have a medieval period. 
Mm. Um, so, um, so there's a lot, um, there's a lot that's going on there. That's quite colonial, um, in effect. Um, it teaches us that even our idea of land in a fantasy is like green rolling hills and that green and pleasant land of England. Um, but, um, but then also I think that the other thing that those fantasies did was really teach us like who was a hero and who was a villain. Um, and I was growing up queer in, again, in sort of the nineties, um, where there just weren't a lot of queer characters in genre fiction. Mm. And those they were, were certainly not heroes. They were always, it was always villains. The villains were always queer coded. Um, if I think about, for example, Disney villains, every Disney villain is queer coded, you know, Scar, mm-hmm. Ursula, Maleficent, Jafar, yeah. the list goes on and yeah. um, the influence extends all the way through, you know, into the modern iteration, which is Marvel and the Marvel hero pantheon. Think of the Thor universe, all the heroes are straight, but all the villains are queer coded, Loki, Hela, you know, <laughs> even the... Um, even the Grandmaster in um, Thor Ragnarok. Um, (laughs) And so, um, and so I was, I was constantly seeing the only place I was ever seeing myself was in villains. Um, Mm. But it, you know, it kind of backfired on me because instead of making me hate myself or hate being queer, it just made me love villains. Um, (laughs) And, um, and so I was interested in just kind of like, just taking on a little bit of that, those basic ideas of fantasy, who is good, who is evil, who is light and who is dark. And um, as I said, kind of playing around with them, maybe pulling out the rug a little bit and, mm-hmm. and challenging some assumptions. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in villains, as you could probably tell from the book. Mm. No, I love it. I think it's fantastic. And and there were so many surprising moments where you were seeing light unexpectedly in, in what, villain characters that I assumed in my head and vice versa, which was beautiful character development it was so exciting oh is that a glimmer of light in the character is that there was so many things that were you couldn't um you couldn't write anyone off as it it was it was yeah there was no one it was everyone was written like a whole person I I would say um if that I'm not sure if you would if you would agree that's how I kind of yeah I think um I think one of the things you know I mean like I, I adore Tolkien, but one of the things that does feel very old fashioned about Lord of the Rings when you read it again now is that the hero is always without and never within. And, um, and it's full of a kind of like, like, a, like a biological determinism where an orc will always be evil and an elf will always be good. But I was very interested in like, what if an orc could do a heroic act um, or what if an elf could betray you? Um, mm. So I wanted to set up one of those, one of those classic worlds and um, and then, like I said, start to start to play with people's assumptions. Yes, and I think I, I might have read it written somewhere that you said that the play with the idea that the enemy is not always the other, the other person either. And I thought that was a clever way of putting it. Right, that's exactly right. Um, and I think when you're when you're constantly looking over there to find your enemy, you know, you don't turn your gaze on yourself. You don't question your own actions. Um, and, um, and I, I, I think it's, it's useful to set up universes where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's truly not always the person that you expect that's going to stand up and be a hero in difficult circumstances. Mm, so true. And, and, and also what I loved in that, um, context too, is the, um, 
it reminded me of that beautiful part of yourself when you have to accept your darkness and 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 kind of get comfortable with darkness in the in the car like you they say if you're you know if, the, if you're the driver's seat that darkness is in the back it's not going but you're living with it and <laughs> and kind of yeah it just reminded me of almost of acceptance therapy you know that, that sort of thing where you just actually rather than struggling and fighting these things you learn to embrace it um, it reminded me of that but obviously there's also a fighting component in the book too um yeah, I just thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah, um, I think, um, like I said, having grown up with so many, just so many, <laughs> I guess, representations of self that were just always in villains, I, again, was interested in, well, what do you do if the narrative is always telling you that you're a villain? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you fight your fate? Do you accept that part of yourself? Do you accept how you're being portrayed? Um, what, how, how, do you, how do you then act and go forward? Um, how, how do you make choices? So, um, yeah, so that's, that's what that idea really came out of for me. Ah, oh, so I, that's so well put. That's yeah, that's definitely what comes across in the book too. It's, it's brilliant. And I have so many questions cause I just am buzzing off reading this book. Um, so there's a few things. So, um, so the first thing that stood out to me about dark rise and your writing and your history as an author was that you write in homonormative worlds brilliantly we've obviously covered this a little bit already um can you tell me a little bit more about that journey of you were saying uh, writing queer characters when obviously they'd been coming up as villains and and kind of changing the narrative um yeah what was there more about that that you that you were brewing on yeah so um you know when I was growing up there were very few queer characters, like especially in, in science fiction and, and fantasy. So I could, I could probably count the number of books there were with like with a gay or lesbian protagonist um, mm. in the in the 80s and through to the 90s on the fingers of one hand. And I and I owned all of them and I reread them. <laughs> I read them and reread them countless times. Um, but even those few stories that there were, um, they tended to have pretty much the same storyline, which was that you know, you realized you were gay, you came out traumatically, mm. um, then you were destined to live life on the worn fringes of social acceptability until at the end you tragically die. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think like even, even now, even, you know, 30, 40 years later, um, those queer narratives do still play out over and over and over again. Mm. Um, but what I noticed was that you know, there was something that was so embedded in our idea of what it was to be queer and what it was to be queer was to be oppressed. And Mm -hmm. fantasy writers were just importing that system of oppression that existed in our own world wholesale into their fantasy worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you you know, if you think of, for example, Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. there's, there's no reason why in that universe it's not okay to be queer like gay relationships mm. aren't accepted yes trauma is um, not already in the narrative for any reason yeah there's just mm. I mean that and and so I think you know for a lot of those writers um you know either it was an active choice that they're making or they just didn't think they didn't it was so normal to them that of course you know being gay was not accepted and um if you were gay you were going to be oppressed that that that's how they constructed their fantasy world so you know there could be dragons and there could be radically different social systems, but queer people would always be oppressed. 
So mm. for me, it was important that I, I tried to, when I created my own fantasy worlds, just set up a space where, like you said, it was homonormative, mm. where um, queerness and oppression didn't necessarily go hand in hand. And as a result, like, um, you know, I, I want to be part of an idea of, of visioning a space where queerness is just normalized. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, oppression for the LGBT community is not going to be trans-historic, trans-cultural, and even across mm -hmm. fantasy worlds, that there can be spaces that we can imagine where, um, you know, we, we truly like liberated from some of those old constraints of the past. Yeah, so that trauma doesn't always have to be woven into the narrative or the future That's narrative exactly as right. well. Mm, yes, and and as you said, homonormative is such a great term too. And, and I think I heard you say one time in an interview that the advantage of writing in a fictional world is that you're not limited to realism. So there's probably, did that play a big role in that? Right. That's exactly right. I, I think, um, you know, if the purpose of the story is realism, then of course it seems important to document oppressions as they really exist. But in fantasy, like the purpose of the story is, at least partly, if not largely, escapism. And so I want to hold the door open also for queer people. You, you too can escape into this world. Mm. Um, the oppressions that dog you in your real life are not going to, going to follow you here. Um, but I think, mm. like, it's important to... I, I do think that there is some power when we create worlds in fantasy and science fiction. Um, if I think of, you know, we're really in an era where we're just flooded with, for example, dystopian sci-fi or mm. and grim dark <laughs> fantasy worlds, um, and they have their purpose, like they're interesting and can be fun. Um, but if the only worlds and futures that you can imagine are worse than our current world, <laughs> you know, then you start to feel very fearful of change. That anything that we do going forward is going to take us to a place that's worse and we start to you know somewhat lose our power to vision positive futures um positive places that we can all go to and um better ways that we can we can all be um you know one of my favorite oh sorry just because we're on a nerd podcast <laughs> I felt like, um, one of my um <laughs> One of my favorite TV shows growing up was Star Trek. That was in the next generation Star Trek Voyager era. Um, to me, that is the, <laughs> the era yeah. Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that I loved so much about that series was its ability to vision a positive future, mm. um, but still tell really compelling um, high octane escapist stories within that future. So I think like yes. that, that role of storytelling is important as well. Mm, it reminds me of um, even Shit's Creek. I'm not sure if you've watched it. It's uh, the new show. Okay, yeah. yeah. I love it. I think Dan Levy, who's the producer of that, because um, that's also set in a, a homonormative world for anyone who um, hasn't seen that show. And he said in an interview that he wanted to write a world that he wanted to live in. Um, and I thought that was right. brilliant. Yeah. And I think uh, I'm, from what I'm hearing, that's what you're saying too, is that we want to escape to a world that we want to be in. We don't want to go backwards. In We want to have a place where we can actually have hope that these things are moving forward. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard that from Dan Levy. I'd not read that interview, but you do get that feeling from that show most definitely. It's true. I, I picked out a little bit on Cheese Creek. I think I was one of those lame people that watched all the YouTube interviews of all the cast and 
all of that stuff. So that's the only reason I saw that in there. Um, yeah, it's it's so exciting to write that that kind of world too. Um, so within Dark Rides, without giving anything away, there was a character who I felt had a gender fluidity to them. Um, have you threaded any gender fluid themes throughout the book or am I just digging deeper in my own accord? reading some sort of story um, that I've made up. <laughs> no, I, I feel that as well. I mean, um, I identify as genderqueer myself and I'm really interested in playing around with um, with gender in, in my work. So, um, but because it's coming a little bit out of the self for me, that mm. kind of stuff, uh, I'm, um, it's always the scariest and the, um, and you feel the most vulnerable when you're doing that kind of thing. So, um uh, this is one of the first times that I've written a gender fluid character. I have um, also in Fence, um, but um, but I but I will say yes, that was intentional. And I think that the the playing playfulness, the playing around with gender, will only um, broaden in scope uh, mm. in uh, in book two of the Dark Rise series. <laughs> Even you see saying, "I'm like, yes, book two, come on." Um, that's yeah that's so true and uh, yeah and it it does get you to think wider and that's always better to think broader is always better in my head and and as you said it would be a vulnerable spot it reminds me that thing that um that researcher Brene Brown talks about when you're really vulnerable that you go from this place of if you stay in that place of vulnerability and keep showing up it goes from excruciating to exquisite and that yeah that the bravery yeah yeah and I've always found it really powerful and that's what I I've that reminded me before when you're saying it's so vulnerable to show up in this in this way but it's such an exquisite thing um to as a reader in this anyway to kind of pick through too yeah and I think um because I mean because yeah one of the the premise of Dark Rise I guess is that you know there once was a magical world and some of the heroes and villains of that world are now starting to be reborn um and so there's just a lot of opportunity for kind of like you know people that who who they were in the past world who they are now um maybe there is some kind of gender gap or mismatch there i recently rewatched um the matrix first oh. movie and i hadn't um i hadn't watched that since the um wachowski sisters came out as trans but i was amazed how trans it was when i did watch it again um, mm-hmm. Just the idea that like your body is not necessarily your own or that there's a real world where you might have a different body. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like you with Shit's Creek, I, I hit the, the YouTube after I watched <laughs> it and um, found out that in early cuts, there'd been characters who had, were different genders in the Matrix and they, they weren't necessarily outside of the Matrix, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I think like there's some part of me that's that's interested in those kind of like gender dynamics as well I'd been really drawn to it in the matrix and something similar was happening in dark rise mm, so true and I and I guess we were talking before about not being limited by realism and being able to actually write realism of our current state that we're in but being able to write that into the future is so exciting too and and draw in those those influences as well um and I've just I've got so many questions I'm going to keep moving through there's so many things here um so how do you write romance and sexual chemistry? Because I'm reading this and I'm thinking, whoa, I'm like, <laughs> this is some tension. It's like, this is a, this is a book for all the senses. Your, your brain is, your, your brain is stimulated. You're, you're flustered. It's, <laughs> I, I think you write that so brilliantly. So do you reflect on personal encounters or do you write completely new experiences? Um, 
I had to detach myself completely from realism when I first started to write romance or sexuality into my books. Um, mm. I think, um, and also not just from real, oh, really, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. Um, what I think I had to detach myself from was the co constant portrayals of sex and sexuality that I was encountering. Um, mm. um, so for example, film or TV representations of sex um, sex scenes that I was reading in romance novels, um, even pornography, um, there's kind of a, there was kind of a, like a, like it had its own language. There was kind of a sameness to it. Um, mm. And um, I didn't want to just recreate that same thing again. Um, mm. I wanted to, uh, when I was writing about sexuality, I wanted it to be extremely individualized um, and come right out of, a kind of a core of the characters. Um, I find, you know, the the sex scenes and and um, romance scenes that I respond most to are always the ones where it's so personal to the characters. It feels so intimate that you you almost feel like you shouldn't be reading it, like you shouldn't <laughs> be watching, but yet you can't look away. Yes, um, and um, <laughs> that's that's the kind of atmosphere that I'm like really interested in trying to to create as well. Um, mm. But you can't at least I can't pull that out of the generic. I have to, I have to kind of divorce myself both from my own um, experiences and from like, yeah, uh, other representations go really into my characters and try and, and write from them and mm. see where they take me. That's my approach. Yes. And you're right. There was a uniqueness to each of the characters in their moments of romance or sexuality where you couldn't pinpoint where they necessarily, you couldn't put a, a, a category on what you thought they were feeling or experiencing or particularly drawn to. It was just a really raw, beautiful, um, just expressions and thoughts and feelings. And um, I love the way you write tension. That's, uh, you're right. At some points I was like, I, I was reading it um, and there were people out in public and I'm at the park and I'm, I'm thinking, I shouldn't be reading this in public. <laughs> it, it, it's not, it's not porn, but I feel like it's so heated. And I, like, I, I, should I be in the room for this? Like, because it's so, um, you're right, you're in there and it's, um, but you're right. It's, it wasn't like any, um, it wasn't like copying, pasting different types of ways you can experience sexuality into new characters. It was actually rewriting new ways of experiencing um, romance and without limits and categories, I think. Yeah, one of my um, one of my favorite writers is uh, Dorothy Dunnett. She writes like mm. historical sagas with also, I guess, romance B plot. Um, and um, yeah, she's kind of not that well known. Like she's writing historical fiction back when historical fiction was really looked down on in the same way that romance genre is looked down on by the mainstream now. So it wasn't, you know, um, novels from historical fiction were not really allowed into the canon. And so she's sort of fallen out of circulation mm -hmm. but if you read her like so many so so many other writers in fantasy um historical fiction romance YA genre have been influenced by her so I, I think of her as kind of like the velvet underground of writers where <laughs> not everyone has listened to her album but everyone that did listen to it cut their own album um, <laughs> yes. and um but uh she has this amazing way of dealing with tension and emotion she's really in control of what i think of as her unwritten text mm. so she'll never write the emotion explicitly on the page but mm. yet you feel it and sometimes it's so astonishing that you're really like you're just overwhelmed with the feeling sometimes of tension 
you know, of, um, yeah, um, maybe it could be sexual tension or tensions of other kind, agonizing mm. tension. Yeah. And you're like, where is this feeling coming from? I can't see it on the page, but yet I'm feeling mm. it. Um, so that's yes. the kind of writing that I like. And that I guess um, that's, that's what I hope to achieve at my, at sort of my best moments. <laughs> I definitely um, think you did, especially in, in Dark Rise, you definitely felt that you're like, it's not said anywhere here, but I swear that, that right. this is, something there's uh, yeah right and even um even unromantic types of tension between two was two characters where there was a, a a beautiful relationship that was involving anger and I don't know that yeah there was a couple of things and I'm sure once the the um recording button is off we can discuss more secret details so you guys are gonna have to get the book if you want to know what yeah. I'm talking about um yeah, <laughs> but, no, no spoilers no spoilers it was very interesting um so speaking of having responses and 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 writing from there were there any other visceral like visceral responses you had while writing the book or things that made you laugh or cry or angry yeah I cried twice while writing Dark Rise 1 and um in my my previous series Captive Prince I cried once in the entire trilogy mm. while writing um, the entire so trilogy I cried twice so yeah um I'm not I'm, I'm kind of a tough nut to crack <laughs> but um, but there were two places where, you know, I, re I really felt it in Dark Rise. But the problem is that as a writer, you can't necessarily, just because you're crying doesn't mean the reader's crying. You can't necessarily trust just because you're feeling it, it's going to translate onto the page. Like I, I always think about the, you know, the, um, just the emotion field, like notes and poems that I used to write when I was like 12 <laughs> or 13. But if I, if I read them now, obviously I was at a, I was just vibrating with emotion when I wrote the when I was writing them. But um, if I read them now, they're they're kind of cliched or it's not like I feel anything from them. So um, yes, I think so we will have those sometimes, diaries. <laughs> yeah, we we've all got those, right? Um, oh yeah. But uh, but so um, so although I was personally overwhelmed, I'm always slightly suspicious of my own feelings when I'm writing. Um, yes yeah did you what about you did you um did you uh have any emotional high points while you were reading oh yeah definitely there was definitely some really powerful moments that I didn't see coming or I think there's nobility could be a thing in, in some ways throughout the book of characters mm. that had an ability to them that was really powerful moments there or um or I think when we were saying before the unsuspecting moments where light shone through someone who I would have thought was a villain or I think there was powerful right. moments for me yeah, yeah. Were really really interesting um and and I was just thinking when you're saying about trusting I guess your gut with writing and whether it's a you or if it's a collective response to what you're writing um something that I've wondered about and I guess maybe for the other authors out there listening is on a slightly different note with trusting your gut how do you manage the tension of trusting the editor and trusting your gut with writing and signing off of this is what I want to go with, but what's right. And mm. um, so for me, my personal process um, is uh, like, like I really hand in a draft that is as close to finished as I can possibly get it. Mm. So I know that there's a lot of people that work much more closely with their editors um and editors have a lot more input or guidance along the way 
Um, I tend to do that with my circle of closest friends who are also writers. Mm. Um, they'll audience the book and give me feedback long before it gets to my editor. And I've worked with those people for such a long time now that um, I do really trust what they have to say. Mm. I think as a writer, um, you know, I, I, with my friends, we talk about it as a feeling of like, quote unquote, the trueness. Um, <laughs> is this true to the book or not? Um, oh. And you're constantly, sometimes you have an internal sense of it. Sometimes you, um, which, which I often do, um, so I'm checking constantly against the inner trueness. Is, is this correct? Is, or does this need to be jettisoned? Um, but sometimes you can't really see truly until you've had a little bit of distance and you're judging the book from the outside. Um, so it's important to, for me at least to um, allow myself some time in the schedule to, um, I think the way they talk about it is put the book in the drawer for a little while and then come mm -hmm. back to it as a reader. Um, but I think, you know, we've all got a bit of a sense of that as readers, when you, you're reading a book, you can kind of feel when it's not working, when it is working. Mm. Um, one of the things that I focus on really strongly is what's called narrative traction. That's the, I guess the term for like page turning quality. Oh, I love and that. That is, um, yeah, that's, um, that's not really something that you can argue about. It's either there or it isn't. Um, so when I'm getting when I'm getting friends to audience, I'll just say, just tell me where the narrative traction drops out, um, mm. and um, and once they let me know where, then I can sort of go back to that place with my toolkit, work out what went wrong, and and fix the problem. Mm. Um, that is it? That's a really brilliant tool in itself. That's that's so useful. I'm sure for the any, the authors listening, the writers that. Yeah, can yeah check for narrative traction and trueness, but also fresh eyes can can influence trueness as well. I'm sure that's that's such yeah. a brilliant that's brilliant way of looking at a, at a tip and and um and now this is something that I no you can't go past without mentioning your relationship with technology and how that helps you um with your writing. We have to hear a little bit about that. Um, <laughs> I think you're talking about the fact that I um. I'm very strict. Well, I, I have almost no technology. So I, I um, first of all, I don't own a mobile phone. Uh, I don't, um, I don't have a smartphone. Well, I just have a um, wait for it, a landline. <laughs> I love it. I love means, it. No, yeah, it, it it means no one calls you because people are just terrified to call a landline. Um, but um, and. Um, and while I do have devices that can access the internet, like my computer, um, uh, I find that the internet is quite a distracting force to me as a writer. Um, mm. And so I'll go to extreme measures to protect myself from the internet and all of its seductions and interruptions. <laughs> um, and for example, I own a time lock safe. Yes, uh, and so at the beginning of the day or sometimes for days at a time, I'll just take my modem or all my devices and I'll put them into the safe. So you, and then you set the timer and the safe <laughs> will not open until the timer goes off. Um, that and is the, the reason, yeah, the reason that I do it is, um, you know, as a writer, if one of your most important tools is concentration, just your ability to sit and concentrate for long hours at a time. Mm. Um, and for me, the internet has such a deleterious effect on, on my concentration. Um, I, it's a constant attentional tug, you know, oh, mm. maybe you've got a message. 
maybe you've got an email, oh, an alert, oh, what's happening? Oh, do you have FOMO? What's going on online right now? <laughs> just, yes. just posted something. What's everyone saying about it? Um, and, um, and so it's hijacking a part of your mind and sort of turning it away from the work to look towards the internet at all times. Um, and, uh, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to look back and think, gee, I wish I spent more time on the internet. I'm very yes. envious of the writers of the past who um, just had these huge grand swaths of time where they, they only had themselves and stillness and concentration and the real world around them and they could focus entirely on their art. So I just yes. try and construct that kind of environment around myself as much as possible. And, and I really like being offline. I like days at a time where you're just reading a book or um, listening to a, a track or um, having a hot drink and you're in your thoughts. And um, I find that perhaps the last thing I'll say about it is um, one of the things that the internet did was creep into all of the moments in my life where I'd previously been bored, mm. but in fact, were also the moments that I would otherwise ruminate. So yes. they, they were stealing rumination away from me and mm. they, it was stealing therefore a part of my creativity. Yes, um, I, I totally agree. It's, it's the importance of boredom, isn't it? And I think also those times as well as creativity and stealing time for rumination, also stealing time for um, processing. You know, when you have an event or yes. things or, you know, I think in those little three minute gaps where you distract yourself on your phone, there could be a favourite author of mine, um, uh, Rob Bell, he said, he goes, you know, sometimes I can, you know, recite these, the five video to you and, and what happened in the videos and stupid YouTube songs, but I can't tell you why I was angry last week. Um, you know, and just things like, and I thought that was really curious and, mm. and just the importance mm. of the boredom in the gaps. And, um, but especially as a creative, as you're saying, that can sometimes be with the magic comes. That's right. Um, I know it's apocryphal, but, um, but, uh, you know, if the apple falls on your head while you're on your phone, do you <laughs> come up with relativity? <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. It's, uh, it's just, um, and, and I, I do think, you know, um, I've said this elsewhere, but like when I, when I first got rid of my phone, it was probably like eight years ago. And people used to say to me, like, I can't, you're absolutely crazy. I can't believe you don't have a phone. The last couple of years, people have started to say to me like, gee, I wish I didn't have a phone. And I think mm -hmm. at least one of the things that has changed is the algorithms of the social platforms that we use have just gotten far more sophisticated. They're much, much better at keep um, at doing their job, which is keeping us online, looking mm -hmm. at um, scrolling, whether we want to be there or not. Like their function is to keep us looking so that they can sell us advertising material. Um, and, you know, we've gotten to the point where the best computer in the world can beat the best human at chess. And we're <laughs> yeah. sort of getting to the point where the, the most the best algorithms in the world are better at directing your attention than you are mm, better um, at conversation so, than you are yeah, yeah. Mm. and they're they're just um they know what will just keep you scrolling um so you end up there on there 15 20 minutes half an hour an hour longer than you intended and you just mm. you just lose time and, um, and now on the same topics now like circled in in one particular mm. point of view with the algorithm locks itself into as well so you're on the same stuff too so 
rabbit holes. <laughs> Yeah, so rabbit holes, exactly, exactly. Yes, I'd always thought to myself, I'd hate to look back at my life and see the percentage of time that I'd spent on my phone and, and be mortified. Oh, it's horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying. It is totally <laughs> horrifying. Um, and so I guess just in, in wrapping up, this is a bit of a words and nerds token question that we kind of are always curious to know of our authors, um, which you've answered bits of this, but overall, why do you write? I think it's I think it's two things. So one is that um, one is simply that I love to write. It's the way that I express my creativity. I think we all have creativity inside of us, and for different people, it comes out in different ways. So mm. it might come out expressing yourself in fashion or design or arranging your room or environment, or uh, it might come out in art or it might come out in words. Um, but yeah, for me, it, it comes out in stories. I just have that part of myself. And, um, and I think even non-writers will be able to identify with the need to tell a story. Something happens to you mm. and the first thing you <laughs> might want to do is just tell someone else. Um, so true. So, um, so in that part, it's just simply personal. Um, but mm. then there's another part of me that um, I grew up, as, as we were discussing, just kind of without the stories around me that I needed, and without the stories around me that uh, where I could see myself, um, the, the stories that um, you know might have uplifted me from certain circumstances, or just just simply allowed me to feel a little bit more more human. Um, and so I I really want to um, be part of a I guess a, a new movement that's writing those kinds of stories. Um, that's sort of opening up the canon a little bit and um, telling new types of stories with new different types of heroes and heroines um, just mm. so that I'm, I'm almost communicating with a younger self um, and, um, and writing those stories that I personally craved. Yes. And I love how you said, I'm allowing you to be human. And that's so true as you're writing in broader context of thinking and feeling and, and, um, <laughs> expanding the narrative more and more people feel like they can be human and I think that's yeah that's a really exciting part I think of um the stories that you write in particular um yeah and I love that idea of of writing something that yeah I know I, there's things that I'm so glad I, I read then but there's things I would have liked to have read years ago that would have been a really helpful or really comforting or character building right or... that's exactly right um mm. and we've all had the experience I mean um we've all had the experience of going into a bookstore or a library and there's some kind of book that we're looking for we've got a sense of it we know what we want and we're never exactly finding it um yes. but what if you could write that book you know mm. um so um that's the book I'm always trying to write I suppose that is brilliant. And I think that's actually a fa um, fantastic point to wrap on, up on because I know there's a lot of authors listening to this as well, um, to write the book that you're looking for in the shop. I think that's a really great note among the other tips that I think that have been threaded through this from you as well. So thank you so much today, Kat. This has been fantastic. Um, and for everyone listening, Dark Rise comes out today. So you can get your copy from your local bookstore or on online on Amazon Booktopia. There's a few different places you can get it. Um, or you can follow CS Picat on Instagram. Are there any other platforms? Um, feel free to um, shout out Catathera. 
Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm CSPacat at on Twitter, or um, you can just find uh, all my information at CSPacat.com. Oh, perfect. Well, I'm sure we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much. And, um, and thanks everyone for listening to the very first episode of A Different Page. I will see you next time. And thanks again, Kat. Thanks so much for listening to A Different Page, spin-off series of the Words and Nerds podcast. This song belongs to the artists, Humans on the Floor. My name is Josie Layton, and you can find out more about me and this podcast at my Instagram page, Josie Layton. So that's J-O-S-I-E-L-A-Y-T-O-N. Thanks, guys.